Uh, Justin mentioned, uh, he let the rabbit out of the hat. Uh, we are uh, going through a series on Judges that will start next week. And you might be wondering, uh, is that a book in the Bible? Um, does that really exist? And it does. Uh, that's the series that I'll be doing. It'll take us a while to get through. Uh, it is a big book, but I'm going to go a lot faster than Robert. Um, and because uh, if I went really slow through Judges, none of you would be here in like six months. Uh, so I'll, I'll be preaching the majority of the time this year. Uh, last year, Robert and I kind of shared First Peter. Uh, some weeks he would do it. Other weeks I would do it. Uh, but this year, I'm, I'm the only one doing Judges. And when Robert, when he comes, uh, he'll be doing his series uh, from John 13 to 17. Uh, so you're welcome to keep up with that, the, the, uh, the sermons in between that you miss here. You can, of course, listen to online. Um, so it'll be, it'll be different going through uh, an Old Testament book. An Old Testament book, we usually find uh, unusual, uh, weird, uh, confusing, difficult at best, and uh, upsetting and unsettling at worst. And there will be times <laughs> uh, during this series that you will be on either ends of the spectrum. Uh, Lord, that you will be confused at times. I'll do my best, uh, but it'll be confusing. Uh, a lot of times you'll inherit the confusion that I bring to you. And uh, other times you'll be very unsettled uh, that some of the things that happen in the book of Judges, and we'll just wade through it uh, together. Uh, but today I'm not starting in Judges. Uh, I'm starting in Luke. And um, I, I think you'll see why uh, pretty soon. But as I was thinking about what happens in this text, you'll see uh, the, a main theme in this text is uh, they go from blindness to sight in this text, which got me thinking about uh, vision. It got me thinking about our eyes. And um, when you look at something, what is it that you see? What categories uh, do you think through to identify and appreciate a given object? One of those is proximity. Uh, one of those is size. Uh, one of those is texture. Uh, shape is one, but the big one is color, isn't it? And color is a beautiful thing. But how does it work? Well, you know, I did what we all do when we want to find out about something. I Googled this stuff, and uh, I actually found a credible source, not Wikipedia, um, from which to learn about the eyes. And what I, I found out some things that I probably learned uh, way back when, but it made sense to me in a new way uh, this week. And I found out that we identify a color when our eyes and our brains work together to translate light. That's what color really is. And humans are really unusual in this, that we have uh, what's called trichromatic vision. That means uh, that we have three different types of photopigments that we work with. Most mammals only have two. So we see a whole lot more colors than most mammals. There are a few uh, animals that have more than three. One of those is butterflies. They have, uh, they have uh, four photopigments. And, here's, and that means that they, they see colors that we can only imagine. But most of us, we have a very, uh, we have the full set of photopigments, which means we have a very similar color vision experience. But some of us, males, uh, or most of these people are colorblind. Uh, I had a friend in college who was colorblind. I never met someone who was colorblind before, at least someone who admitted it, knew it, admitted it. And uh, we would frequently walk through campus and me and my roommates would say, hey, what color is that? We would always do it when girls were around uh, to make him look silly. And you might think we're mean, but he, he got us in other ways. Uh, he was a good sport about it. He wrote us. Um, but, he, but he was the first person I knew that was colorblind. And it shocked me to think that he saw things so differently than I did. 
But we all, both my colorblind friend Gabe and myself, that we determine reality based on what we see with our eyes. And what we see with our eyes, we form beliefs about those things. That's how a normal human functions. We usually have to see something to believe it, don't we? If I would have told you 20 years ago that there would be a, a, a pit in the middle of the city for 10 years, you wouldn't have believed me. <laughs> if I would have told you 50 years ago that we would have an African-American president, you probably would not have believed me. If I would have told you about the severity of the flood in Houston this past week, you wouldn't probably believe me until you saw it. So let me ask this question. What, what if our eyes don't comprehend the full gamut of reality? What if there are things, really important things, that fall out of our view and then skew our perception of what's real? This is our experience as sinners. We're colorblind. We don't see things as they really are. And that's what our text is all about today. So let's read it together. Luke 24, you can find it in your bulletin, page 7. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood s still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village, the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while we, he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what happened on the road and how he, has, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. It's two points tonight. Uh, one is the blindness of humanity. You'll see it in verses 13 through 24. The second point is the revelation of Jesus. 
uh, verses 25 through 35. The blindness of humanity. So here you've got two uh, people. Uh, we know Cleopas uh, was a man, but we don't know about the second one. We don't know what their name was. We don't know if it was uh, a guy or a gal. Uh, but we just know there's two of them. And they've been in Jerusalem for all these events that have happened. They've seen Jesus' arrest. Uh, they've been a part of Jesus' trial. Uh, they've been a part of Jesus' crucifixion. And now they have this seven-mile journey home to this small town called Emmaus. And you see that word in verse 17. It says that they were very sad. Very sad. Uh, th- there's another word in the Greek they could have used for sad, but they used uh, the one that means gloomy, one that means solemn, the ones that means sorrowful or depressed. It's like, uh, it's a heavy word. It's like sadness uh, to the fifth power. That's the state of their soul, that they were sad, verse 17. But why were they so sad? Well, it's because their hopes had been dashed. They're despairing because the leader that they had placed all their eggs in his basket has let them down perceptively. He was the one who's going to make all things new. He was the one who's going to return the fortunes of his people. He was the one that was going to release them from the captivity to the Romans. So how could he, the one who made dead people come to life, how could he himself die? How could it all end like this? It just didn't make any sense to these two people. It's been traumatic. And now they're talking out these events on the way home. Seven miles. Now, seven miles, you and I don't walk seven miles normally, but think about it. I mean, it'd take them two to three hours, probably, to walk this distance. And they're talking this whole way uh, when they're part of the way through the journey and they're joined by a third person. And this person wants in on the conversation. He wants to know what they're talking about. And, one, and Cleopas uh, responds to this person who wants in on the conversation and says, uh, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? <laughs> don't you hear the sarcasm? Uh, don't you hear him say, like, how are, out of touch are you, bro? Uh, how do you not know what's just happened back there? And so Cleopas fills him in. Cleopas fills in this newly acquired travel buddy of the happenings in Jerusalem. And that's what you read about in verses 19 through 24. So as the reader, you know something that these two disciples don't. You know who this third person is. You know that it's their, their travel buddy is actually Jesus. But why couldn't they see him? Why couldn't they see him? Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. We'll see just in a minute who, uh, who, who Jesus puts the blame on. Was it God who kept their eyes shut or was it them? Well, we'll see here in a second. But they're blind to him. So these two guys uh, who were blind to him, they don't believe Jesus. I think this has a lot to say. It has something to say to skeptics. It has something to say who would call themselves disciples, people who follow Jesus. Well, to skeptics, uh, I've got people who say to me, if I could see Jesus, then I'd actually believe in him. Would you really? These two see Jesus, and they don't believe in him. Here's what I think that means for you and me. I think a lot of times uh, we think that modern science, uh, we think that Western, uh, the, the Western secularity that many of us, that we eat, uh, that we drink, and that we breathe all day, every day, we think that's the ultimate reason why people don't believe in Jesus. 
And if people could just be given hard facts, proof, then they would actually believe in them. The biggest proof would be Jesus himself standing there. But this is a good place to turn. This is a good place to turn that maybe that's not what it would, that's not, maybe that's not what it would take for them to believe in Jesus. And the reasons are myriad for us, but I think there's something much, much deeper going on than just needing proof. Sometimes it's the ethics of the Christian faith. They're incompatible with our lifestyle. We don't want to change our lifestyle. That's the real reason. Sometimes it's that we think the claims of the Christian faith, they rub against our deeply held convictions about how life's supposed to work. Therefore, we don't believe in Jesus. Sometimes the reason we don't believe in Jesus is because we've had a terrible experience with Christians or with the church. So if you're a skeptic today, Here's what I want to encourage you to do. We want you to doubt your doubts. We want you to ask the reason. What's beneath the reason that you say that you don't believe? We want you to consider the possibility that perhaps today, Jesus, the real Jesus, is meeting you not on a dusty road to Emmaus, but in the air-conditioned Thomas Hunt Morgan house on Labor Day. Because what he did to these two disciples, he can do to you. To, the, to, to those of us who call us disciples, I think that here's what this says to us. I think it's a, war, it's a word of warning. If we, we had it here, I didn't read all of it, but if we went back to verse 9 of chapter 24, uh, you'll, see that, uh, you'll see the women. The women, are, they come barging in saying, hey, there's an empty tomb. Jesus is not there anymore. And the people to whom the women pronounced it were the eleven. Now, the 11 are, there used to be 12 disciples, but remember they lost one because Judas has committed suicide. So it's to the 11, and then verse 9 says, and all the rest. All the rest. So there's 11, this inner, inner circle of disciples, of followers of Jesus. And then you've got all the rest. Now, this doesn't refer to all the rest of the people who have believed in Jesus at some point during his earthly ministry. This is just saying that second ring. Those who are really, really close to Jesus, those who have high commitment here, those who have high exposure here, and that's who Cleopas and his companion were. They were as inner circle as inner circle could get. And if they were as inner circle as inner circle can get, and they didn't recognize Jesus, what does that say to you and me? I think it says that you can spend a lot of time around Jesus and still miss the point. Let me put it another way. Our proximity to Jesus does not determine our intimacy with Jesus. You can call yourself a Christian. You can be a member of a local church. You can be baptized. You can read your Bible. You can listen to K-Love. You can pray. Uh, you can go to Christian schools, send your kids to Christian schools, and miss it. Preachers can miss it. Those in ministry can miss it. And we can be very, very distant from Jesus. So whether you're a skeptic or you would call yourself a disciple of Jesus, we need the same thing. We need Jesus to do to us what he did to these two disciples. We need him to come alongside of us. We need him to call us out. And we need him to open up the scriptures to us. That's what we really need. So we see the revelation of Jesus, verses 25 and 35. Look at verses 25 and 26. I want to read them again. <laughs> so Jesus is kind of 
Uh, Jesus is coming out in the open here. <laughs> he's, he's been, uh, he, he, he has been uh, hidden up to this point. And then verse 25, he comes out like a bull. In verse 25, he says to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the scriptures have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus doesn't coddle them and empathize with them and say, Ah, I know it must be hard for you to lose your leader. How about a hug? He doesn't do that to them. He calls them foolish and slow of heart. So here's a guy they just met who calls him a fool and slow of heart. Well, just a quick aside. Do you have a category for Jesus doing that to you? Jesus right here, he gives us a reason. He gives us a reason why they didn't recognize him at first. The reason is their belief. He says right there, it was because that they wouldn't believe all the prophets had to say about him. Well, what was it that they wouldn't believe? Well, it was his suffering. And this shouldn't surprise, this shouldn't have been a surprise to the two on the road to Emmaus. They, they should have known perfectly well that the Jesus who, 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 who walked in his earthly ministry for three years squared perfectly to the Messiah that was expected in the Old Testament. But there were things about what the Messiah was promised to be in the Old Testament that they didn't want to believe. What they wanted to believe is that the Messiah was going to come in power. What they wanted to believe is that the Messiah was going to restore his people. And when he didn't choose to do those things, we didn't choose to do those things in his first coming. He's going to do it in his second coming. Well, they didn't do it in his first coming. They disregarded his claims. And so when he died, they didn't know what to do with him. So they were sad. Sad to the fifth power. And so what Jesus has to do is he's got to catch them up to speed. He's got to fill in some gaps for them by teaching them from the scriptures. And we all need Jesus to do this with us. We're in these two disciples' shoes because none of us have the fullest, most accurate vision of what Jesus is really like. We're limited in our understanding of who he is. And we need him to interpret his scriptures to us with him at the very center of it. Look at what he says in verse 26. Verse 27, actually, he says, And beginning with the prophets, with Moses, that Moses means uh, the first five books of the the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures concerning himself. So he didn't just teach them the historic stuff or broadly theological things. He taught them sharply on his person, the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And I think there are a few passages that maybe Jesus would have referred to. So you've got Jesus walking along these two guys. He just calls them foolish, and he just calls them uh, slow of heart. And then he goes into this teaching lesson. And I just think he's talking from memory, because back then they had these big scrolls, and I don't think Jesus had those in his backpack. So Jesus is just talking. I mean, he knows the word. He wrote this thing. And so I think he might have brought up this Genesis 3 passage. If you read a little far in that Genesis 3 passage, you'll see that what uh, what um, what God promises the serpent in Genesis 3 is that he would, the serpent, Satan, would be overcome by the seed of the woman. Yeah, he might have won that small battle there at the knowledge of, tree, uh, the, knowledge of the tree of good and evil, but there was going to be a bigger battle. And in that bigger battle, the seed of the woman was going to crush his head. But while the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head, the seed of the woman's heel is going 
to be hurt. So even in this, you see in the midst of victory is going to come suffering. And I think Jesus is saying, hey, that's me. I'm the seed of the woman. I'm the one who had to suffer. I had my heel struck. I think he might have talked about Genesis 22. Genesis 22, you've got God ask Abraham to kill his one and only son. Abraham obeys. He goes up to sacrifice Isaac. And at the very last minute, God provides a substitution for Isaac in the form of a ram. And so Abraham kills the ram instead of Isaac. What's that sound like to you? Jesus, the only begotten son. Jesus, the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Psalm 22, the psalmist says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so those who were standing there at the foot of the cross should have been thinking, oh, I've been hearing Psalm 22 since Sunday school. And Jesus just quoted it. That's what Psalm 22 is really all about. But nobody got it because nobody wanted to believe that the Messiah had to suffer. Then maybe the biggest one was Isaiah 53. Jesus is walking along. I'm, I'm, just, I'm using my redemptive imagination here. In Isaiah 53, and I think Jesus quotes verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So right here, we we hear that God's people, they're going to have peace and they're going to have healing, but it's going to come at the expense of the Messiah who's going to have wounds, who's going to have chastisement. And Cleopas and his friends should have understood that the meaning of the cross right there is in Isaiah 53. But they didn't. Why? Because they're foolish and slow of heart. Now notice, uh, notice what Jesus was using. Well, notice the scriptures he was using. He's using Moses and the prophets. Jesus didn't have a New Testament. New Testament didn't exist yet. So it would have had to have been passages like the ones I just referenced that Jesus was telling them about himself from. So we know what he's, so we, we looked at those in the Old Testament, but now we've got the New Testament. And we see in the book of Luke that it's not like Jesus didn't talk about that he was going to have to die. It's not like Jesus didn't talk about the fact that he was going to raise again from the dead. Here's what Luke 9 says. Luke 9, 22. Jesus says this. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. <laughs> I mean, get it? Why didn't they understand that when he died? Why didn't they get it? It's because their eyes were shut. Because they wouldn't believe that they had to have a suffering Messiah. Another place, Luke 18, 31 to 33 says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So he goes in great detail about exactly what's going to happen that hasn't even started yet. How could they have missed it? It's because their eyes were shut. Because they didn't want to believe that they had to have a suffering Messiah. So Jesus has been really clear here. It's not a communication problem on the part of Jesus, but it's a belief problem on our part. So here, Jesus has held class here on this road to Emmaus. But he's not done with them yet. 
They get close to Emmaus and Cleopas and his friend. It's getting late, and they ask Jesus to come stay with them. But they're hungry for more. They didn't reject this teaching. In fact, they were intrigued, so invite him to come. So he comes and stays. So they come and stay, and so they're, of course, hungry. So they sit down, and Jesus takes a loaf of bread. He took it. He blessed it. He broke it, and he gave it to them. And if you look right there, uh, said that he took the bread. That's verse 30. Look what happens in 31. Their eyes were open. They recognized him. <laughs> and he vanished from their sight. Why would they have recognized him? Because they may have been there at the feeding of the 5,000. You know what Jesus did there? He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it and he gave it to them. They may have been in the upper room. Or they may have heard about what happened in the upper room. And what happened in the upper room? Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. So he took it. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. It clicked for them. What he did with the bread. They understood it. Maybe it's because of what he did with the bread. Maybe it's because they saw his hands. Maybe they saw the, 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 the scabs in his hands from the nails going through it at the crucifixion. So the moment the light bulb went off, the moment that they had that aha moment, their jaws had dropped, their eyes had to be huge, and Jesus leaves. He vanishes. Poof, he's gone. Might sound a little sci-fi for you. It might even sound impossible, but this is Jesus. This is the one who rose from the dead. So here they are. They're left at the table, just the two of them. Their eyes are opened. When in verse 16, their eyes had been kept from seeing Jesus. And listen to what they say. They say, did not our hearts burn within us on the road when he spoke to us the scriptures? Burn. There was this uncontrollable longing created in Cleopas and his friends when Jesus put a Christocentric interpretation on the Old Testament. They didn't want to believe that their Messiah, their God, their leader had to suffer. And that's why they were so sad. And that's why they were blind. But now they're lit up with the light. But what got them there? What got them from their eyes being closed to their hearts burning with joys and them recognizing who Jesus is? What was it? It was the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament interpreted rightly through the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want to ask myself a question, ask you a question too. When's the last time your heart burned over the revelation of Jesus in the Old Testament? I remember the first time for me, like it was yesterday. I was in seminary. I was in chapel. We had chapel every Tuesday. And uh, my, my favorite professor, Dr. Smith, uh, he's preaching Psalm 23. And I remember weeping like a baby because I had never seen Jesus in the Old Testament like that. Uh, I can remember sitting here lots of times uh, hearing Justin sing the Psalms, my heart burning with the light in the person of Jesus. I thought about this summer in July going through the book of Jonah, just seeing Jesus right there in the middle of the story. 
I can think of lots of times laying in bed with my kids reading the Jesus Storybook Bible, talking about the Old Testament. And this is my hope as your pastor. My hope as your pastor is that your heart would burn for Jesus when we go through Judges. I hope it burns during th- these moments. I hope it burns in moments by yourself. I hope it burns in moments when you're in your neighborhood group and you're continuing to, to press down and interpret the text. Why? Why is this so important? Because I want you to see. Not long ago, I saw a video. You know, you waste a lot of your life watching meaningless videos because of uh, social media. But I watched one that was actually worthwhile. And uh, it was of a 66-year-old guy. He'd been colorblind. And uh, he was opening up a gift. And uh, he opens up this gift, and they look like a pair of sunglasses. And he's like, ah, I want to do a pair of sunglasses. And they said, well, Papa, if you put those on, you'll, you'll be able to see colors. They, they help, they're supposed to help your colorblindness. He's like, I, I don't think he believed them. And uh, he puts on the glasses for the first time, and he has them on for about two seconds. And for the first time, he sees the greenness of the grass, and he takes them off, and he just weeps. A few seconds later, he puts them back on, and they said, Paul, Paul, take off your hat. He's wearing a Florida Gators hat, and he saw that nasty blue and that nasty orange. <laughs> he took them off and wept some more. Then the video kind of cuts out, and it goes to another scene. It's him watching TV inside his house. They've got this big HD TV, and he's sitting there in the middle of his house with these big, like, blue blockers on. They're huge. And he's just talking about the crispness and the brightness of these colors. It's a tearjerker. But I think it's really important for us because what we need to do is we need Jesus to put on the glasses of faith on us as he's revealed in the Old Testament. And what he's going to do to us, he's going to make our hearts burn with joy. Let's pray together. Lord, we confess our blindness. Uh, Lord, that we, uh, we want to paint you in a different light than you actually are. Lord, we don't want a suffering Messiah because that means we're going to have to suffer. But Lord, we, we so badly want a full and accurate, uh, um, a compelling vision of who you actually are. So Lord, would you correct us? Lord, you were patient with him. Yes, you called him out. But you, didn't, you just didn't call them a foolish and slow of heart and leave. Lord, you, you continue to walk with them. You taught them. You, you ate a meal with them. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be receptive to you dealing with us in the same way. Lord, that you would call us out, but that you're going to be patient with us. And you're going you're to sit around normal things like a dinner table with us and show us who you actually are. Do this even now at this meal. In Christ's name, amen.